the boundary comes from bar 8, 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. My Paddy now, who's going to speak to us, God with us series on this passage. Well, good to see you here at a public meeting on Wednesday. I have to remember that because uh, while I was here last week, I wasn't giving a talk and I gave this talk last Thursday. So now I've got to remember what day of the week I'm up to. Just let me... Yep, here we go. I don't know, they wire me up with all this sort of stuff. Uh, so good to see you. Glad that you've been able to join us for uh, this time today. And a particularly warm welcome to you if you're visiting us or if you've been invited along by a friend. Hopefully, if you've uh, been brought by a friend, you've sort of had the courage to turn up, in which case, welcome. Um, uh, the uh, thing that we really love about public meetings is that they're open and public, which means people can just walk in and sit up the back and listen. And so hopefully, if you've got questions, I'll be able to hang around a little bit afterwards. You might like to come and ask me that question uh, if you feel a little bit nervous or uncomfortable about doing that. That's okay, I don't bite. I'm generally a fairly sort of friendly guy, um, but you might like to just ask your friend that question and then they can uh, try and answer that for you. So hopefully, Christian's in the room, you're listening, so you're actually going to be able to engage with the questions that come up out of today's talk. I want to uh, start as we address this topic of the God of suffering by asking you a particular question, and it's this. If you, in your capacity, were able to conceive of God... What might they be like? What might this God-like figure be like? Uh, Would they be all-powerful? Sort of begs the question, if they're not all-powerful, then maybe you could imagine or conceive of a a being or a thing or an entity or a force or a power that's even more powerful than that one. Surely that would then be God. But would this God-like figure or being be all-powerful? If you are able to conceive of God, would they be benevolent? maybe in reaction to what you experience in your own life, and maybe as you look out on the world and you see suffering, and you say, well, if I could bring God 
to fix this problem, this is what they'd do. Maybe you might suggest that in the sort of current climate of uh, gender equality and things like that, that God should not be of any particular gender, shouldn't be referred to as he, maybe it's just an it. Or maybe you might go with some who suggest that women would do a far better job of running the world. Maybe God should be a woman. Well, you might be sitting there saying, well, actually, I think the world gets on quite well without God and he or she or it or them have never experienced, I've never experienced them, I've never seen them and the world still runs. So I think if I was to conceive of God, they would just be conceived of as being unnecessary. If you conceived of God, what might they be like? All-powerful? Benevolent? A woman? Unnecessary? Let's just presume for a moment you conceived of this particular God and they ended up existing. Yes, the philosophers in the room say, therefore, you would be God because you conceived of them and brought them into existence. Let's not run with that at the moment. But if this God that you conceived of ended up existing, would they, for example, be able to provide unlimited resources? An end to the inequality in the world. If this God that you'd conceived of ended up existing, perhaps they'd make people differently. That'd solve all the problems in the world. Perhaps they'd enable greater equity and equality. Or perhaps the God that you conceived of would actually be in a position to do away with pain and suffering. Both for your own sake, that you might not have to go through any pain and suffering ever again, particularly if you've experienced that pain and suffering physical or emotional or spiritual or otherwise, but also because you just deep down genuinely think that pain and suffering is a bad thing and you'd like to do away with it. That you exhibit that feeling says something about who you are as a person, actually. And so in the next 20 minutes or so today, I want to try and spend some time looking at the passage that was read for us. If you've got a copy open in front of you, that would be really very helpful. Because I want to talk about something of the nature of the God of the Christian Bible. And the aspect that I want to focus on is what might it mean for God to be a God of suffering? And along the way, from this particular passage, I also want to show those of you in the room who aren't followers of Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how you might become one. So the passage as we've got it in front of us comes from Mark's Gospel, It's a historical biography of the life of Jesus. You can read it for yourself. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. The ushers will give you one. There's a whole stack of uncovers down here. Take one and read it. Read about the life of this man, Jesus. This particular section, chapter 8, comes probably about towards the end of Jesus' life, although it's halfway through the narrative of Jesus' life. It's probably towards the end of his three years of public ministry. And then the next sort of phase of his life, as you read from chapter 9 following, is the sort of the immediate weeks leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. Oh, I just gave away the ending. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, You can still read it anyway. It's a good read. Uh, And in fact, it'll be really insightful because you might sort of think, oh, these Christians believe that Jesus died and rose again, but why was that necessary and what was all that about? That's the reason to read it, actually. So at this particular point in the narrative, you'll notice that Jesus asks a question that actually all of us ask at about this stage of life. Did you, did you see it there? Jesus asked this question 2,000 years ago, and it's the question that you all ask at the moment. Jesus asks an identity question. He asks his close followers, his disciples, who do people say that I am? That's the question that we all actually keep wrestling with, and particularly when you're in this 18 to 25-year-old age, who am I and who will I become? It's an identity question. You see there in uh, verse 27, 
And clearly the public had really mixed thoughts about who they thought Jesus was. Because notice the responses that Jesus' disciples give. Verse 28, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah and some one of the prophets. Now, interestingly here, all three of the responses, John the Baptist, Elijah and the prophets are all prophets. They all exist at sort of various times. And so it's worth just, I think, pausing to say, well, why is it that the crowd, particularly the people that had seen Jesus in his public ministry, why had they thought that Jesus perhaps was a prophet? Now, sometimes if we don't know our Old Testaments well, we would often struggle to answer this question. But see, the people of the day, because the writings that they had from God were the Old Testament, we now have the Old Testament, they knew their Old Testaments well. And one of the things that they would remember, because they would have been taught it from a very early age, is that the prophets were these people who often preached a message of... They came from God and they preached a message of judgment against the enemies of God. They often always spoke a message of deliverance or salvation for the people of God. Sometimes they worked miracles. So if you read in the Old Testament, saying 1 Kings, the story of Elijah... Uh, There's this just great story where he sort of talks to one of the kings of of the nation of Israel. The the king of Israel, perhaps surprisingly or maybe unsurprisingly, is worshipping other gods. And Elijah comes on and they had this competition to see whose God is most powerful. And you wouldn't be surprised to realise that the God of the Bible, the God of Elijah, becomes the, the God demonstrates clearly who is most powerful. This is a miraculous thing. Fire comes from the sky and consumes this altar and a sacrifice. And so maybe the people have followed Jesus around. It seems like he's preaching a message of judgment and the people of the day might might have thought, finally, Jesus will kick out the Romans who are occupying the Jews. Jesus is clearly working miracles. Some of the crowd will have seen that and witnessed it and been amazed. Others would have heard about it. It would have spread, not unlike, say, a viral meme these days, for example. Although, let me tell you, the miracles Jesus was doing were just not memes. They were actually miracles. And so... The public had mixed thoughts about who they thought Jesus was. But the question still stands, doesn't it? Who do people say that I am? And I want to suggest to you that this is a question that even 2,000 years later has stood the test of time. It's a question that actually, as I'm going to show you a little bit later on, all of us need to have an answer for. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? See, how do you conceive of this person of Jesus? You might say, well, he's just he's a historical figure. He existed. Or you might be more sceptical and say, oh, I really doubt the evidence. I don't think he existed. He was made up in the third century. You might say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that he existed. He's just said some really good stuff. Like, um, you know, be kind to other people and don't hurt people and uh, love everybody else. And that's make, what makes the world go round. Well, you might actually have come to a slightly different conclusion, a conclusion that's far more consistent with what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus. Notice how Peter responds there in uh, verse 29. Peter gives him this really almost intriguing answer. He doesn't say to him, oh, you're a nice guy, or I like the miracles you're doing. He doesn't say, oh, you're definitely one of the prophets. No, he uses this little phrase, you are the Christ. Now, this sort of word Christ, or sometimes can be translated as Messiah or anointed one, is a description of a God-sent individual who would end up rescuing the nation of Israel. This figure was predicted hundreds of years earlier in the writings of the Old Testament. And this particular figure would actually make good on the promises that the prophets had been saying. This Christ figure would come and pronounce judgment upon Israel's enemies 
and usher in the new kingdom of God through judgment and deliverance. And the rule of this Christ figure, this Messiah, is expected to continue into all eternity. This was the promise that the Israelites had received. God with us. God with humanity. God ruling in perfect relationship over the world with all of his creation. And this came as no surprise to the Jewish people. That's what they had taught their children from an early age. That's what the Old Testament had been predicting for four or five hundred years. And so against this backdrop of Old Testament expectation, Peter, having spent three years walking around with Jesus, says, you're that guy. You're the guy who was to come. You're the guy who is the Christ. And so Jesus then, in verse 31, begins to teach them what it means for him to be the Christ. He uses another little Old Testament phrase, the Son of Man. Um, but he talks about what it means for him to be the Christ. Did you see it there in verse 31? I'll read it again. He says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Now, to many, that would seem somewhat strange and almost contradictory. Surely this Old Testament figure is this great kingly figure who is to come to deliver the people through defeating all of the enemies, through saving all of the people who are under the suffering of enemies. But this is how Jesus describes what it will look like for him to be this great saviour. It will be through suffering. Surely this as well is somewhat confusing because would would we not, if we conceived of God, just do away with suffering? Why then does this individual, this man, Jesus, who claims to be God's promised Messiah, then pronounce that the means by which he will become the Saviour is through suffering? See, surely in our own experience, we would seek to try and minimise suffering. Now, I know some of you don't do this all the time because uh, some of you like rigorous exercise. Look, I know there's some in the room who like rigorous exercise. I know most of you don't, but some do. And some of you may regularly attend the gym and just try and show off to your mates. I mean, not show off, uh, perform. I mean, just, you know, lift as much weight as you can. My observation of people who go to the gym is they spend more time standing in front of the mirror instead of actually lifting the weights. So in that case, I guess suffering's a good thing. People who go for a run, a really, really long run, do any of you really like running a really long distance? It really hurts. I've done that occasionally and you start really suffering and it's very painful, but deep down you go, this feels so good. And sometimes you know it's actually good for you to get some regular exercise. But generally in life, with the exception of exercise, don't we try and minimise pain and suffering? We, we rarely put ourselves into situations where we say, yep, I'm going to go into that relationship because that person's going to be mean and nasty and vindictive and speak cruelly. Like, we just don't do that. We rarely step into situations where we know we're actually going to physically suffer. We often run away from the things that would cause us pain and we often almost flee to the things that will bring us pleasure. Is that not the reality of life? And the world and its desires often encourage it, don't they? Which is why we get so frustrated on Instagram. Because we flick through and we look at other people's photos and they're so much better than ours. 
Their holidays look so much more attractive. Their food looks so much more tasty. We go, oh, I wish my life was like that. Their life is clearly very pleasurable. Mine is not. I wish my life... Do you see? Naturally, as human beings, we tend away from suffering and we tend towards pleasure. But notice what Jesus says here. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Jesus goes willingly into suffering, which means we ought to really ask the question, who is this man? Is he just a masochist? Jesus just asked the question, who do people say that I am? And from an outsider's point of view, you might say, you're a crazy guy who walks towards suffering. But then it also begs the question, why? Why would you go through so much? Well, I want to suggest to you there are three considerations as to why Jesus suffers. Uh, Let's work through them fairly quickly from the text that's there in front of us. First thing, the suffering is at the hands of his own people. See, Jesus predicts that he will suffer at the hands of his countrymen, not complete strangers. And so if you read the rest of Mark's account, the life of Jesus, you start to see what it involves. He heads off to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He's put into a mock trial with a miscarriage of justice. He's convicted on trumped up charges. The religious leaders at the last hour then coerce the local Roman governor into pronouncing a death sentence. But he's not actually guilty of anything. And then even then, when the Roman governor says, well, look, you can, we can punish Jesus or I'll let some other bloke go. Who do they want? They basically want the local form of a terrorist who's been going around killing people. Release that guy. Punish Jesus. All from his own people. That's suffering at the hands of your own people. But intriguingly, I think what is perhaps more stunning and confronting is that Jesus, as the Son of God, God with us, goes willingly to suffer. And he goes willingly to suffer even though from before all of eternity, this one, the second person in the Trinitarian relationship, has been with his Father in perfect relationship. Can you imagine giving up a perfect relationship to suffer? And it's been perfect from all eternity. He, this one Jesus, is prepared to give up that for the sake of not just becoming human, God with us, but also then to suffer at the hands of the very people who he has created. So the first consideration is the suffering is at the hands of the people. Secondly, notice what it says there in verse 31, it will involve his physical death. See, Jesus' death is not just a metaphor for going through suffering in life. No, because as if the unjust trial and the rejection and the humiliation and the separation from the Father are not suffering enough, Jesus undertakes the ultimate form of suffering in a physical death. It involves two aspects, again, physical and relational. His death, as recorded for us in all of the four gospel accounts, is by crucifixion. Arguably for the day, one of the most brutal and barbaric means of killing anybody. The Romans had practiced this thousands of times to make it the worst way to die. That that might be a deterrent for people. But not only is it a barbaric means of killing people because the means of crucifixion was that you didn't die from blood loss, or rarely, you died from asphyxiation. Because what would happen is they would nail big bits of steel about this big through your hands, 
pretty much through there. Just it, let's do a little experiment. Get one hand. Get one hand. It's not as bad as another experiment. Get another finger and just now trigger warning. Don't push too hard, okay? Just gently push into the hand. Feel how it's sort of a little bit soft, but then if you push it around, you feel there's a bone in there. Okay, you feel that? Okay, so that's where the nail goes, straight through there, okay? So here's the other thing, put your hand down on the desk in front of you and just get your thumb and just gently push. Feel it starting to hurt a little bit. Okay, now just imagine if you take the thumb away and get a big steel spike and hold it there and the person sitting next to you comes along with a hammer and... And so, you know how if you have... Occasionally, if, uh, occasionally if you've ever had... Occasionally, if you go to hospital and you've had a general anaesthetic, what they do is they give you a local anaesthetic first because then they put a reasonably sized needle... Sorry, it's not that big. They put a reasonably sized needle into your vein. They give this little local anaesthetic and they do this and they say, this needle, we're just going to shove it in there. And... No, no, back in the day with crucifixion, there's no anaesthetic. They just they tie your hand down so you can't move it. They get the steel spike and they just slam the spike through your hand into the timber. It is excruciatingly painful. One hand on this cross member, one hand on this cross member, and they do the same with your feet. Sometimes they put two feet on top of each other and put a steel spike straight through the top of them. Lots of little bones in there that get shattered immediately. We actually have some archaeological evidence, I should have bought a photo of it, of someone who's been crucified. It's, it's, um, it's a calcified set of ankle bones that have been stood together like that and the steel spike has gone straight through the two of them. And what the archaeologists have found is this steel spike, it's literally about that long, and two calcified ankle bones. You just imagine how painful this would be. This was crucifixion. And the reason why you died from asphyxiation was because they set you up on the cross so that you had to keep pulling yourself up to keep breathing. So your hands were always up and held higher than your ribcage, which meant you actually died excruciatingly painfully over a couple of days. Not immediately. This is the death that Jesus is willing to go to. And associated with this is the shame of crucifixion. See, the crucifixion, death by crucifixion was for criminals. Jesus is willing to do this. It's a horrible way to die. But secondly, in the actual death of Jesus, we see the separation of Jesus from his father in the relational sense. Because his death is recorded for us later in Mark 15. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's relational anger being poured out by the father on the son in what was up until that point a perfect relationship. The full anger and wrath of God is poured out. That's the punishment that Jesus undergoes. So secondly, the consideration, it involves his death. Thirdly, notice there in verse 31, it will not end in death, for it promises a resurrection. There is a limit to the suffering of Jesus. It will end in death, but the prediction here is that there will be an expectation that he will rise from the dead. See, here in this brief prediction in verse 31, Jesus gives us insight into what it means for him as God with us to suffer. He's prepared to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. He's willing to go to the cross to suffer physically and die but his suffering will not be permanent. So what then does all this mean? Well, my first question is, is this how you would conceive of God? And generally we would say no. Secondly, what this means is that this is a God who commits to be with us, but does so in order that he would suffer and die. Why? What God would do that for the sake of his creation? 
You see here that Jesus speaks plainly about what's about to take place in verse 32. Even when Peter seeks to try and stop Jesus from pursuing this path, Jesus sternly rebukes him. And the reason why is because what Jesus has in mind, all part of the plan of God, is that he would come, live, demonstrate he's the Messiah in the manner in which he lives, but more fully demonstrate he's the Messiah in the way in which he suffers and dies and rises again. So what this episode of Mark's Gospel reminds us is that the God who came to be with us suffered horribly. God in the person of Jesus became like us and died and suffered. Which is why on one hand, God can understand what we're going through. No matter what physical, emotional or spiritual suffering we undergo as creatures, as humans. God himself has been there. For he too has suffered. But more than that, I want to suggest God has suffered not just as an example for us, as much as that is true, and we can read about that elsewhere in the New Testament, or so he can sympathise with us, as powerful as that is. But what did it mean for God to be with us in suffering? He's not just a good example, as good as that is. He's not just one who can empathise. No, no, what it means was that Jesus was prepared to suffer the punishment from God that we deserved, that you and I deserved by being part of humanity. And that punishment is due us because in our, in our humanity, we keep rebelling against God. We say to the Creator, actually, I think I can do things better. Actually, I want to follow my own desires. Actually, I don't actually want to listen to you. It should have been us dying for that rebellion. But God sends Jesus to step into the place which we deserve. This is God with us, voluntarily entering into suffering that we might not have to suffer for all eternity. Which means the consequence of Jesus suffering in the place of you and I is that he can genuinely, rightly and truly offer salvation, redemption, forgiveness, because he has suffered and because he's taken the punishment for our sin, which means we are no longer under the personal wrath of God. Which means those who are no longer under judgment, having been forgiven by trusting that the death of Jesus achieves this, can therefore live rightly as followers of this Messiah. Which is why Jesus goes on in verse 34 to address the crowd, those who would follow after him. And what is it that Jesus requires for those who would follow him? Notice what verse 34 says, Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, the passage goes on there to indicate that in verse 38, this son of man who died, who rose again, will actually return one day. And on that day, as ruler of the world, Jesus will actually ask each of us to give an account for how we have responded to this question. Who do you say that I am? Because on that day, it will all be clearly revealed who he is. He is the risen Lord, ruler, Jesus Christ, God's promised saviour. And that day will be the moment where you will need to give an account. 
And so the question you get to address for yourself today is, how will you respond, knowing that that day is coming? Not unlike the question, how will you prepare for your end of year exams? You know they're coming, because we've passed the census date. Exams will be here one day. Will you work now, or will you start in mid-sem? Or will you delay until stewback? Or maybe the night before? The morning of? See, knowing the future actually helps us make better informed decisions now. Jesus' claim for the future is he's coming back again. So the question is, how will you respond to this question when Jesus says, so who do you say that I am? Will you have sought to gain the whole world? But in doing so, forfeit your soul. Or will you, having been a disciple of Jesus and denied yourself, responded by saying, you are my Lord, you are my saviour. You died for me and I have sought to follow you. See, if it's the first, Jesus says, well, you can stay under judgment for all eternity. But if it's the second, then Jesus says, welcome, come and be with me for all eternity. So what then does it look like to have Jesus as your saviour for God to dwell with us? Well, firstly, it involves dying to the self. This is really difficult. This is really challenging, which is why actually you need God's help to do it. See, you cannot just wake up one morning and say, I'm just going to be a better person and that will please God. You'll not not be able to do it. You will not meet his standard of perfection. God says, you can't do it. I've given you the means. Jesus has died that you might be forgiven. But when you accept that, it actually means denying yourself. Jesus uses that little phrase, take up your cross and follow me. It's not saying you have to carry around a large wooden cross with all of your and be nailed physically. No, that's a metaphor, isn't it? See, this is the claim that Jesus makes over the lives of his disciples. Deny the self that you might rightly understand who Jesus is and trust and obey him, not your desires. Secondly, what does it look like? Well, it's a recognition that Jesus has suffered and died that you will be forgiven by God. This is God come to us. This is what he's offering. Forgiveness, acceptance, salvation. The things we deeply long for, actually, in our own existence. God says you will find it most fully and perfectly in a relationship with me through the death of Jesus. But thirdly, what does it look like to have Jesus as your saviour? Well, it's living daily with whatever suffering will come our way. See, the world is neither a good nor an evil place. The world is a dangerous place. There's good and evil in the world. People will suffer. Some to small extents, some to great extents. Which is why the Bible says we look for the day when there will be a time when there will be no more suffering. But in the meantime, those who are disciples of Jesus will live daily with whatever suffering will come. And we're going to need help doing that because suffering is really painful. It hurts. But being a disciple of Jesus means you fix your eyes on the end time. You do not ignore the suffering, nor do you dismiss it and just pretend that it's not happening. No, actually, you live through it. So to finish, 
How do we try and sort of pull all this together? Well, let me try and hear. I want to say to you that God has been with us in the person of Jesus. God has experienced suffering. He knows very powerfully what life is like as part of humanity, which means he can relate to every aspect of human life. But more importantly, he's become God with us and died and risen from the dead that you and I can be in a restored relationship with him. And this is the offer that's made today. God has suffered for you. Accept his offer of forgiveness and therefore live differently between now and his return. Thanks, Cody. Hey, also think about today about um, God's character and who God is. Um, I encourage you to not leave it there. I'm perhaps chatting to the first two boys you're along public meeting today. I'm chat to Patty Arthur, so we are um bathroom team. Um, myself or anyone else there. But I really encourage you not to leave it there, but talk to someone about it. Also, if you head to the eConnect.me page, you can ask any questions or comments you may have there as well. I'm after public meeting today, some lovely viewers have baked some more fantastic goods there for afternoon tea, which you can enjoy. But I'm just to finish up with you, um, feel, um, feel like doing so, I'm going to pray. So please pray with me. Dear Lord, you came down on earth. You know exactly what it is to be human, and you died the most painful death for us because you loved us. Lord, who are you? You are Lord. You are the risen Lord Jesus. Um, and help us to respond um, in calling you as Lord. Amen. Amen.